Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a parable best known by the name, The Prodigal Son. I never like this title because the more I read the text, the more it is evident that the central character of the story is not the son who returns, but rather the father who lovingly demonstrates unmerited favor to both of his sons. Accordingly, in this episode, I will extract theological lessons and practical applications from the parable of the loving father. We will clearly see that the story highlights divine love, forgiveness, and joy over the lost being found. I must also mention that in the parable, the Father represents God, so in what follows, I will refer to the two interchangeably. So, when you hear me speak about the Father in the story, you can also think about your Heavenly Father. Before I read the parable, we have to be mindful of the context, which explains why Jesus is telling it in the first place. In fact, Jesus tells three parables in Luke 15, and the principle that links all them together is rejoicing when something lost is found. It is also important to note that all three parables have a crucial turning point. Said turning comes from supernatural light, for the good news can only be viewed as such when one knows the bad news. Of course, divine light is crucial for turning points because there is a big difference between a natural awareness and a supernatural conviction. And so, to set the context of the parables, Luke 15 verses 1-3 to says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable, saying, Jesus only saves sinners, so being one qualifies you for redemption. Jesus never saves anyone who doesn't think they need saving. Furthermore, those who are of Christ's flock draw near to their shepherd. This is why the text says that tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus. But what were the religious hypocrites doing? They were critiquing God for associating with those people. The text then says, And so Jesus told them this parable. Meaning, as a result of hearing their spiritual snobbery, Jesus begins to tell everyone about God. That is, contrasting his love with the exclusiveness of the Pharisees. Jesus thus tells the parables of Luke 15 in the midst of a group that favored spiritual apartheid, or salvation by segregation. Consequently, the Lord tells one parable about lost sheep, another about a lost coin, and a third about a lost son. Here now is the third parable of the loving father. Luke chapter 15 verses 11 to 32 says, And Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that is coming to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate in wild living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began doing without. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed pigs. 
and he longed to have his fill of the carapods that the pigs were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread, but I am dying here from hunger? I will set out and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired laborers. So he set out and came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, slaughter it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf, because he has received him back, safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you never gave me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured you of the prostitutes, you slaughtered a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. The first observation that I would like to draw your attention to in the text is the motive of the younger son who left home. In verse 12, the son asked his father for his entire share of the estate, and soon thereafter, the son went into a distant country. In other words, he goes into darkness and anonymity. Of course, we cannot read motivation into the text, but what is evident is that the son was trying to get as far away from his father as possible. Why? Perhaps because of discontent or the idea that the farther away from his father he was, the better he would be. This is a trap that sin classically lays. Something seems to be advantageous, and considering where we are, we reason to ourselves that we would be better somewhere else. And to get to that somewhere else, we have to separate from God. That separation doesn't need to be physical, because you don't need to go to a faraway country to be far from God. You can, in fact, feel that distance in spirit, despite being near many means of grace. And so, the younger son moves away from a loving father and toward those who are indifferent to his long-term well-being. Yet, he is soon to receive a real-life education. In verses 14 to 16, we learn that the son went broke and was so destitute, he would have gladly settled for pig's feed. Ironically, he thought he was making improvements, but he was literally being driven down into the dirt. This is what sin does. It invariably brings you down lower than you could have ever thought because it is far more destructive than it seems. Sin is a merciless and hard master, and the servants of it find this out sooner or later. 
while the regenerate will turn back at some point, the unconverted are never really happy in the dirt because under the facade of cheerfulness, they are heartsick, dissatisfied, and weary of their ways. They have perpetual famine within. As it says in Proverbs 10.3, The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will reject the craving of the wicked. Consequently, verse 17 marks the turning point of the parable. The text says, But when the son came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread, but I am dying here from hunger? I will set out and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired laborers. So he set out and came to his father. The NASB translates that the son came to his senses. The Greek could also be translated to say that the son came to himself or that he began to think rationally. In order to come to one's senses, it is evident that one first had to have departed away from clear rational thought. And so, it is fair to conclude that this son only moved away from his father in space because he first moved away from reason in mind. Consequently, after illumination with supernatural light, the son had a change of mind. With said change, the son recognized that he was in error and sinned both against God and his father. The essence of repentance involves first a changing of the mind where one turns their mental attention away from themselves and toward God. After all, sin is sin because it is ultimately treason against the king. Furthermore, true repentance ultimately does not look inward because no sinner can properly deal with their own sin. Repentance is neither merely aimed at alleviating guilty feelings or minimizing consequences. However, self-examination is fruitful as the sinner experiences the devastating consequences of their own sin. Pain has the uncanny ability to impress sanctifying lessons upon the soul. Biblical self-examination thus leads to the end of the self so that a person will earnestly say, What am I doing? I must go back. As repentance turns the mind away from sin, faith turns towards the Lord, the only one who can properly deal with sin by forgiveness. In the parable, the son essentially relinquished himself of himself and said, I will throw myself back on the mercy of my father. Because his son will always be his son, the father will always love him, even when he's covered in filth. The great hope for the Christian is that our Heavenly Father still loves us even when we are unlovable. What is important not to miss in this parable is that the love of the Father did not begin to be demonstrated to his younger son when the son returned. Rather, when the son was in the depth of his debauchery, it is then that the Father's love began to take hold of his heart so that he would eventually conclude, I must go back. You see, if the younger son truly thought that his father would disown him, he would have never went back. If he thought his father would have acted like his older brother or the religious hypocrites, the son would have no hope. But the son, being a son, had a sense of his father's love and mercy already in his heart, and this is what nudged him to return, even if he thought he would lose his birthright and work as a servant. 
Hence, for all God's children who go astray, He is not waiting to unleash secret wrath on those who repent and return. His intent is not to crush those who are bruised and broken. See Isaiah 42.3 and Matthew 12.20. Instead, the Lord's heart yearns for His children to return. Consequently, a loving father's response is to rejoice that his child has come back to where he desires them to be. This principle is perfectly highlighted in Jeremiah 31, 16-22. There, the Lord speaks through the prophet in order to communicate words of hope to his exiled people. The central gist of the text is that although the people of Jacob are scattered, the Lord will bring them back, restore them, and turn their mourning into joy. Jeremiah 31, 16-22 says, This is what the Lord says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There is a hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. I have certainly heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was corrected like an untrained calf. Bring me back, that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I turned back, I repented, and after I was instructed, I slapped my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated, because I bore the shame of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will certainly have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road marks for yourself. Place guideposts for yourself. Direct your mind to the highway, the way by which you went. Return, O virgin of Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, you rebellious daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on earth. A woman will shelter a man. What is interesting about this text is that in verse 18, the Ephraimite prays and says, Bring me back that I may be restored. Yet God's command in verse 21 is, Return. How is it that God responds to a request for help with a command to do something? Certainly, the Lord is not being cold or aloof. Rather, God's response is evidence that He was already at work in the heart of His child. God gives a command because the road back home was already made clear. After all, the only reason why a wayward child would return home is if God acted first in order to bring about a change of mind. Without divine assistance, we would all be rebellious children wavering to and fro. It is divine grace, not human initiative, that makes return possible, and so the Lord tells His child to set up road marks, direct your mind, return. To bring this back to Luke 15, what is evident then is that even though the son was far away from his father in a distant country, the father's love was very close to his child. It was the father's love that drew his child in the first place, and it was the father's love that was accentuated the most when the child was a mess. And so, another great hope for the Christian is that God is not good because He is compassionate only to respectable people or those who meet the performance requirements. God is good because He instructs sinners in the way. Psalm 25, eight. Hence, His grace tastes the sweetest when experienced by those who know they deserve it the least. 
This is an important insight into the divine heart because in order to truly see God, we cannot rely on our own thoughts, feelings, or perceptions. We have to rely on what God has revealed about Himself, and He is the one who delights in mercy. Micah 7 verses 18 to 19 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. How you think about God determines how you respond to Him. The other way of saying that is you become what you worship. Psalm 115.8 says, Those who make idols will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Thankfully, God delights in mercy, so those who believe in the Lord's steadfast love will return to Him because they have no reason to fear. Conversely, if a person were to think that God is full of unsatisfied wrath or that He would disown them, they would be reluctant to return. They would in fact think that they would have to get themselves together before returning home since God only accepts those who are already rehabilitated. In fact, whatever you are doing in your life right now is a commentary on your theology. Do you think that Jesus is of first importance? Then you yearn for intimacy with Him. Do you think that God speaks truth? Then by the power of the Spirit, you strive for holiness. Do you think God doesn't know what He's talking about? Then you live in unrepentant sin. In the end, God is sovereign over all of reality, so even if a person thinks what they are doing is hidden from God, he is always reading their commentary. If a person were to think about the father's justice at the expense of his mercy, like the older son, then they truly will reap what they sow and get what they deserve. Resultantly, those who have fallen away have no hope and no chance of reconciliation. After all, how many guilty people would willingly walk into the court of a harsh and merciless judge? There is no room for mercy because if you mess up, there are no second chances. This unbiblical perception about God has caused needless despair in many because they have developed an impression of the Lord that doesn't represent the God of the Bible. Satan has crippled many genuine Christians this way by clouding their minds with phony theology. But if we listen to what God has said about Himself, He is not only eager to shower grace in the humble, but He is the God of second, third, tenth, and millionth chances. Accordingly, in Luke 15, the Father didn't even wait until the Son came close. The Father ran out to meet His child because that is what loving parents do when a lost child has returned home. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Luke 15:20. It is a human tendency to think about ourselves more than we do about God. This innate propensity is one of the obstacles that nudges us to underestimate the steadfast love of God while perseverating on our past transgressions. I say this to draw your attention to the fact that before he arrived home, the prodigal son reasoned to himself and said, I will set out and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your higher laborers. Luke 15, 18-19 
And when the son meets his father, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Luke 15, 21. In other words, the son thought that his sin would revoke his sonship. He erroneously thought that his wickedness and immorality would sever and permanently alter the relationship he had with his father. Based on the son's own words, he said in his heart, I may return home, but when I do, my status will be revoked. Although I may be a son by birth, I won't be one in status. Since I committed these heinous sins, what I deserve is forfeiture of all my rights and privileges. This way of thinking is yet another barrier to returning for many children of God, for while they think they may be allowed back in their father's house, they will not enter back into the father's heart. They imagine carrying a burden with them where they regard themselves as second-class Christians who ride in the back of the church bus. But how does the father respond to his son? After the father greets and embraces his son, he says, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on my son, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, slaughter it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come back to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Luke 15, 22-24 The son thinks that he is no longer a son, but the father says, This son of mine. Notice the pronouns, not just a son, but a son of mine. The love of the father could never detach himself from his child, and so he proclaimed to all that this one belongs to me. Thus, what this parable tells us is that no matter what happens, the prodigal son will always be the child of the father. The glorious hope this communicates to all Christians is that once a child of God, always a child of God, and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of our Father. Romans 8, 36-39 God's love for His children is not dependent on you. It is dependent on God through Christ and is therefore unconditional and unchanging. Through the Christian's union with Jesus, the Father looks down on all His children and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17, Mark 1.11, Luke 3.22 Indeed, sin merits chastisement, and the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. Yet, divine correction is never done in order to punish and throw away. Rather, it is done so that those who do drift will come to their senses and return home so their Father can embrace them with open arms. In the story of the prodigal son, many focus their attention exclusively on the younger son who leaves and then comes back. But the father's love also was demonstrated in his interaction with his older son who never leaves home. The text tells us that after the younger son returns, the father throws a celebration. As the older son approaches the house, he hears music and dancing and inquires as to what's going on. One of the servants tells him that his brother has returned and his father has received him. Then, in verses 28 to 32, the text says, But the older son became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. 
But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you never gave me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Ironically, the older son never left home, but in his heart, he was the one who now was far from his father. The older son would rather his father demonstrate justice as opposed to mercy, and because he did not get what he wanted, he was angry. His basic response was, what about me? The father says that the older son has always been with me, meaning he never packed up and left home. Yet interestingly, religious pride is an uncanny and adverse effect of obedience, and those who truly believe in works, like the older son, expect to be rewarded. They also expect punishment for those who perform badly. However, in spite of his older son's cold heart, the father goes out to meet him as well in order to demonstrate compassion. The father could have chastised his older son for selfishness, but instead chose to reveal his heart. I use the word selfishness because the older son failed to consider if he was deserving of the justice that he desired to be inflicted on his younger brother. Indeed, what does it actually mean if we regard ourselves as better than the next man, that we are still vile in the sight of a holy God? If the older son received the same judgment that he desired to be dispensed, he would be crushed. Still, it is important to note that in both instances, the father goes out to meet his sons, and the one who sinned greatly now has the greater humility. That is, the younger son, who has felt the sting of sin and knows exactly what he deserves, delights all the more in the father's mercy. Considering where the younger son was, it becomes so clear that God truly does work all things together for good for those who love him. At the beginning of Luke 15, the Pharisees and scribes refer to Jesus as one who receives sinners. This was intended as a gesture of condescension, but in fact describes the mighty stoop of heart from a holy and undefiled God. That God would receive the worst of sinners is marvelous and heartwarming. Let us therefore always remember that God proved His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 At the beginning of Luke 15, the religious hypocrites accuse Jesus of receiving sinners and eating with them. But now, Christ does not merely invite us to a dinner table or to an open square. He does so into his heart where we may abide forever. Christ fellowships with those deemed unsavory because in his own words, the Son came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10 Beloved, go not to a distant country. The Lord invites you to return, for there is no more wrath left for those with a broken and contrite heart. Truly, the Son has already been delivered over for your wrongdoings, Romans 4.25, and so divine justice has been satisfied. Do not search in vain, but realize that what you are searching for is already yours in your Father's house. Why leave his house where that is exactly where you belong? 
your heart will remain restless until it rests in the love of the Father. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.